Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. My brothers and sisters, I'm <coughs> grateful for that uh, prayer and uh, introduction and for the beautiful musical numbers, not only that beautiful special musical number, but the congregational hymn as well. I agree with the late uh, Apostle Adam S. Benyon, who said, uh, what we need in this church is better music and more of it, and better speaking and less of it. Come, Come Ye Saints is one of our most loved hymns, uh, not only because of its pleasing music or even its poignant words, but because of the feelings it evokes as we reflect on the courage of that first and second generation of noble Latter-day Saint pioneers who laid the foundations of this great kingdom. Some of us are descended from these remarkable stalwarts. Uh, like uh, many others, my great-grandfather, William Jordan Flake, answered the call of President Brigham Young to leave the relative comforts of the Salt Lake Valley and lead a colonization er uh, effort down into northern Arizona. The town uh, he established under the apostolic leadership of uh, Elder Erastus Snow was named in honor of both of them, Snow Flake, Arizona. I'm told that uh, Snowflake uh, once had a mayor uh, by the name of Jack Frost, uh, <laughs> and he told people he was Jack Frost from Snowflake. Uh. <laughs> Over the years, our family has taken a lot of flack for the name Flake. Uh, one of my missionary sons found it hard enough being named Elder Flake, uh, but to make matters even worse, he was assigned to work with a companion named Elder Looney. <laughs> People really had to be honest in heart to hear the gospel from Elder Flake and Elder Looney. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, Snowflake is just down the road from another little Mormon town called St. John's one of whose uh, favorite sons uh, is the president of this university. It was a privilege to grow up in a family hearing uh, pioneer stories from both sides of my family and from many others as well. Not all of these stories were of uh, trials and tribulations. Some of them were uh, of uh, funny little instances of early, everyday life, like the uh, journal of Harriet Williams who crossed the plains and uh, records this, they knew I was no cook, but they left that job for me anyway. After gathering buffalo chips, I built a fire. After I got it started, the wind played with it as it pleased. I put the Dutch oven on to heat with the cover by the side and made a pie of dried apples and put them into the Dutch oven, <clears throat> the, the lid still heating by the side. I turned away to the wagon several yards away and when a girl called me to look at my rice, a nice cow sneaked up and helped herself to the pie and sneaked off. 
I had a hard time cooking the biscuits as I was jumping in and out of the wagon and climbing over the provision box and watching my baby girl and getting what my husband wanted as it was his misfortune never to be able to find anything he was looking for. <laughs> the fire had its own way of burning, and I thought, oh, Zion, will we ever reach thee? I enjoyed hearing my father and grandfather tell of one good old pioneer brother, and he confessed his folly. He said that he was leading two very large calves with a rope on each and a rope in each of his hand, and uh, as he came to a gate that uh, he needed both hands to open, he didn't want the calves to escape, so he tied the end of each rope to one of his legs. <laughs> he recorded in his journal... <laughs> You know, those calves had not dragged me 50 feet before I figured out what I had done wrong. <laughs> A number of years ago, I had the privilege of uh, traveling by chartered bus to uh, Palmyra, New York, with 150 wonderful young ladies from BYU and other Utah schools. These young ladies served as special missionaries to help put on the Hill Cumorah pageant. On our return trip, we visited several church history sites along the Pioneer Trail. One of these sites was the Mormon Cemetery uh, at Winter Quarters near Omaha, Nebraska. As we walked quietly up the hill containing the graves of many of the saints who died there, our spirits were subdued. Located near the top of the hill is that impressive Avard Fairbanks monument uh, with which you are no doubt familiar. It is a statue of a pioneer father and mother. The father has the shovel in his hand, and they're standing before the open grave of their baby. At the base of the monument in bronze are listed in alphabetical order the names of most of the 600 pioneers buried there. Those 600 are just a tithing of the 6,000 who lie in graves along the rest of the trail. Without a cue or suggestion from anyone, the girls began singing, Come, Come Ye Saints. At first they sang very strongly, but as the words and spirit of that great hymn sunk deeper into their hearts, their singing turned more into sobbing. By the last verse, I think I was the only one still singing. As I voiced the words, and should we die before our journeys through, I was scanning the list of names on the bronze plaque. In the Fs, I saw two names that caught me by surprise. Samuel Flake, age five months, and Frederick Flake, age one day, and then I stopped singing too. As the church uh, continues to expand, especially in foreign lands, the percentage of members who are literally descendants of the pioneers decreases. But I believe with all of my heart that all of those who bind themselves to this great work which the pioneers began are somehow spiritually adopted and become descendants of those noble forebearers. This very real bond was touchingly displayed for me when I listened to one of my students with tears running down his cheeks 
express gratitude for his heroic pioneer ancestors who crossed the plains and laid the foundation of this church. This would not have been so unusual except that his name was Doug Sakaguchi, a Japanese convert. I believe in a very real way Brother Sakaguchi is as much a descendant of the pioneers as I am. A number of years ago, a non-Mormon scholar visited this campus and shared a wonderful story. His name was Earl V. Pullius. I don't remember what point he was illustrating with the story, but I remember the connection I made between that first and second generation of pioneers and the present generation of young people and new converts to the church. The story concerned Bruno Walter, the renowned musician. Before World War II, he was the conductor of the Vienna Symphony. This unique uh, symphony had uh, a wonderful organization and spirit and unity and synergism that produced glorious music, uh, powerful and unmatched by any other symphony. When the Nazis took over Austria, the conductor fled to America, and it was not until 1947 that he finally was able to return to Austria. His first priority was to visit his beloved Vienna Symphony. As he approached the concert hall where they were practicing, he could hear the strains of their remarkable music. He said that if he had been anywhere on the face of the earth, he would have been able to identify that sound as coming only from the Vienna Symphony. When he entered the concert hall, to his amazement, he discovered that the, uh, although the exquisite music was, uh, and the quality of that music was still there, not one of the musicians playing in the symphony had been with it when he was its conductor. All of them were new, but the powerful spirit remained. All of the first and second generation of pioneers are gone. Our challenge is to maintain that great, valiant spirit of sacrifice and courage that characterized their lives and service. A few weeks ago, Elder Jack H. Gosland of the 70 gave a moving address from this pulpit. It happened to be the 151st anniversary of the assassination of the Prophet Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram. As Elder Gosland reflected on that tragic event, my mind was drawn to a copy of a newspaper clipping I have in my file uh, that contains an interesting, though somewhat garbled, account of the martyrdom reported two weeks after the fact in the New York Weekly Herald. The headline reads, Important News from Nauvoo, Death of Joe and Hiram Smith, Terrible Excitement in the West. In part, the article reads, we received yesterday by Western Mail the following particulars of the death of Joseph Smith the prophet and his brother Hiram. They were both shot. There was tremendous excitement in the West in consequence of their death. The article continued and then ended with this three-word conclusion and prediction. Thus ends Mormonism. This uh, newspaper was not alone in that uh, gloomy forecast. Many observers, both friendly and antagonistic, believed that with the death of its dynamic leader, the church founded by Joseph would go the way of numerous other flash-in-the-pan religious movements. 
That prognostication would have likely come to pass had Joseph Smith, in fact, been the founder of this church, but he was not. I bear my testimony with yours that this church and its establishment is the very fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel that in the last days the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. In Doctrine and Covenants 33, verse 5, the Lord proclaims, And verily, verily, I say unto you, that this church have I established and called forth out of the wilderness. Expectations that the church would disintegrate had been voiced frequently before the martyrdom and have been heard many times since. Even now, anti-Mormon writers engage in wishful thinking as they see what they think are the foundations of Zion crumbling. When the authors of a book uh, critical of the Church uh, concluded, the future of the Church is dim, President Gordon B. Hinckley responded with characteristic politeness. Without wishing to seem impertinent, I should like to ask what they know of that future. They know nothing of the prophetic mission of this Church. The future must have looked extremely dim in the 1830s. It must have looked impossible back in those Ohio-Missouri days. But notwithstanding poverty, notwithstanding confiscation and driving and disenfranchisement forced upon the Saints, the work moved steadily on. It has continued to go forward. Never before has it been so strong. Never before has it been so widespread. Never before have there been so many in whose hearts burn an unquenchable knowledge of the truth. One of the early antagonists of the prophet Joseph Smith and the saints was Thomas Ford, the governor of Illinois. He was a willing facilitator, if not an active per perpetrator, of the death of the prophet Joseph Smith. His view of Joseph Smith and the future of the Church is expressed in his book, The History of Illinois. Thus fell Joe Smith, the most successful impostor in modern times, a man who, though ignorant and coarse, had some great natural parts which fitted him for temporary success but which were so obscured and counteracted by the inherent corruption and vices of his nature that he could never succeed in establishing a system of policy which looked to permanent success in the future. In an address given by President Hinckley on this campus in January of 1988, he detailed how after Thomas Ford's be betrayed the prophet Joseph Smith, the governor's fortunes declined until he died in obscurity and poverty six years later. President Hinckley observed, It is a thing of interest to me that except for his connection with the death of Joseph Smith, Governor Ford is almost entirely forgotten today. The decline of his fortune, the sad end of his life and that of his wife, together with the tragic experiences of their five orphan children, become a tale of defeat, bitterness, and misery. While Thomas Ford has been largely forgotten, love, respect, and honor for the prophet who was murdered at Carthage have grown across the world. Great is his glory and endless his priesthood. 
Ever and ever the keys he will hold. Faithful and true, he will enter his kingdom crowned in the midst of the prophets of old. May I uh, share with you three uh, short stories uh, which may or may not be related. I really don't know. But uh, they underscore this theme of maintaining the continuity of the pioneer spirit. In 1900, uh, Thomas J. Yates, a Mormon student attending Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, had an interesting conversation with the co-founder of that institution, Andrew Dixon White. Dr. White had served uh, as the ambassador to Russia several years earlier and told Brother Yates of a visit he had with Count Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy, as you know, is considered by many to be the greatest Russian philosopher, social critic, and novelist of all time. His best-known work is the lengthy classic War and Peace. It's been read and viewed in the movie version by millions the world over. The Russian movie version is six and a half hours long. It's so long that I'm told they charge three different admission prices, one for those over 12 and one for those under 12, and another for those who turn 12 during the movie. I don't know if that's really true or not. <laughs> According to Brother Yates' recollection of uh, what Ambassador White told him concerning the exchange with Tolstoy, the great Russian scholar asked Dr. White to tell him about the American religion. Puzzled, Dr. White explained that we don't have an American religion, that each person is free to belong to the particular church in which he is interested. Tolstoy is reported to have shown a little impatience in replying, I know all this, but the church to which I refer originated in America and is commonly known as the Mormon Church. What can you tell me of the teachings of the Mormons? Well, Dr. White said, uh, I know very little concerning them. They have an unsavory reputation. They practice polygamy, and they're very superstitious. Then Count Leo Tolstoy rebuked the ambassador and said, uh, Dr. White, I'm greatly surprised and disappointed that a man of your great learning and position should be so ignorant on such an important subject. If the people follow the teachings of this church, nothing can stop their progress. It will be limitless. There have been great movements started in the past, but they have died out or been modified before re they reached maturity. Then, according to Yates, uh, by way of uh, White, uh, he made uh, this, that is, Tolstoy made this powerful prediction. If Mormonism is able to endure unmodified till it reaches the third and fourth generation, it is destined to become the greatest power the world has ever known. While some have questioned the accuracy of both White's and Yeats's memory, it is clear that Tolstoy had an interest in Mormonism and referred to it in his journal, in print, and in conversation. One of Brigham Young's daughters, Susie Young Gates, corresponded with him and sent him several books and pamphlets, including the Book of Mormon. It is also clear that this statement attributed to Tolstoy found its way into the speaking and writing of the early church in this uh, century. After graduating from Cornell, 
1902, Brother Yates returned to Utah where he apparently shared the Tolstoy prophecy with various interested members and leaders of the church, possibly including President Joseph F. Smith. The second story, which, as I say, may or may not be related to the first, is told by President Spencer W. Kimball, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, in the October Conference of 1969. When I was a youngster, a stirring challenge came to me that moved me not a little. I cannot remember who issued the challenge or under what circumstances it came. I only remember that it struck me like a bolt out of the blue heavens. The unknown voice postulated, the Mormon Church has stood its ground for the first two generations, but wait until the third and fourth generations come along. The first generation, fired with new religion, developed a great enthusiasm for it, surrounded with bitterness, calumny uh, of, the, of a hostile world, persecuted from pillar to post, they were forced to huddle together for sur survival. There was good reason to expect that they would live and die faithful to their espoused cause. And President Kimball says, the second generation came along, born to those uh, enthusiasts, zealots, devotees. They were born to men and women who had developed faith were inured to hardship and sacrifices for their religion. They inherited from their parents and soaked up from religious homes the stuff of which the faithful are made. They had full reservoirs of strength and faith upon which to draw. But, continues President Kimball, wait until the third and fourth generation come along, the cynical voice said. The fire will have gone out. The devotion will have been diluted. Sacrifice will have been nullified and the world will hover over them and surround them and erode them. The faith will have been expended and the religious fervor leaked out." And President Kimball concludes, that day I realized that I was a member of the third generation. That day I clenched my growing fist and gritted my teeth and made a firm commitment to myself that here was one member of the third generation that would not fulfill that dire prediction. The third story may identify the unknown voice that spoke to President Kimball of the dangers of the third and fourth generation. Sometime in 1904 or 1905, when Spencer Kimball would have been nine or ten years old, the president of the church Joseph F. Smith gave a powerful address entitled The Third and Fourth Generation. It is possible that that is where Spencer Kimball heard the challenge that he said moved him not a little. Another person who was moved by that uh, address of President Smith was the conductor of the Tabernacle Choir, Evan Stevens. From the book Stories of Our Latter-day Saint Hymns, I quote, when Evan Stevens was the conductor of the Tabernacle Choir, he was thrilled on one occasion by a sermon delivered by the late President Joseph F. Smith entitled The Third and Fourth Generations. At the close of the service, Professor Stevens strolled alone up City Creek Canyon, pondering the inspired words of the President of the Church. 
Suddenly the muse came upon him, and seated upon a rock which was standing firm under the pressure of rushing water and happily symbolic of his theme, he wrote with a pencil uh, and the words and composed the music on roughly drawn staves for a great Latter-day Saint hymn. True to the faith, shall the youth of Zion falter in defending truth and right? While the enemy assaileth, shall we shrink or shun the fight? No, true to the faith that our parents have cherished, true to the truth for which martyrs have perished. True God's command, soul, heart, and hand, faithful and true, we will ever stand. Whether these uh, three experiences are closely related or not, I don't know, but I'm intrigued by that possibility. I do know, however, that Mormonism has and will endure unaltered, not only to the third and fourth generation, but through all generations of time, for it is the very eternal gospel of Christ. Sister Valate Raleigh penned these words regarding the pioneers. They cut desire into short lengths and fed it to the hungry fires of tribulation. Long after those fires had died, molten gold gleamed in the ashes. They gathered it in bruised palms and handed it to their children and their children's children forever. May we be true to the faith and true to the truth that with them, our noble pioneer ancestors, we may ever stand. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.